A few weeks ago, uh, I shared a story uh, about 12 boys on the soccer team and their coach that were rescued from the flooded caves of Tom Luang in Indonesia. And those boys were in there for three weeks. Uh, people could not get to them. It looked like they were probably going to either die in that cave or some sort of dramatic rescue was going to have to happen. And they brought in divers from all over the world that came and, and really did this phenomenal rescue of all 13 of those young men out of those flooded caves in Thailand. And obviously those families and those boys were extremely grateful for the rescue. But not every rescue is as dramatic. And not every rescue is as appreciated. Uh, just a few years ago, just about six hours north of us in Canada, uh, there was an incident where there were two young men who got on top of a large block of ice in the Onotobi River. And what they did is they used sticks to push themselves out there and kind of steer themselves around on the water. But what they didn't know was that as they kept going out further into the river, they were going to encounter an increasing current that was going to drag them to the Onotobi Hydro Dam that was 300 yards down river. So there were um, you know, groups of people on the shore that were shouting at them and trying to wave them in and warn them. And they basically were posing for pictures and shouting profanities and mocking the crowd and all of these things. And one of the people on the shoreline called it into 911. And eventually the fire and rescue team showed up and they brought a raft out to rescue the young men whose response was, we don't need rescuing, we're fine. We don't want help. <laughs> So eventually and reluctantly, they got into the raft, to which if they wouldn't have, would have meant definitely serious injury, if not probable death. Now, what a contrast. The boys in Thailand who recognized how dire their condition was, how desperately they needed help, who were so grateful for the rescue, and then these boys on a block of ice who had no clue the danger they were in, no clue that their lives were very much being threatened and were oblivious to the need for the rescue and were ungrateful for the rescue. One group of guys got it, the others did not get it at all. Well, here's the reality. We are the boys in the cave. And we are the boys on the block of ice because our relationship with God has been fractured by sin. And our determination to live self-absorbed, self-centered lives in complete disobedience to God is our cave. It is our block of ice. And the outcome of life without Christ is going to be death. And not merely physical death, but the Bible talks about a second death which is eternal separation from God's goodness and God's glory. But God, out of his love for us, sent his son Jesus to rescue us. And he didn't come scuba diving in the caves of Thailand. He didn't come on a rubber raft in Canada. He came to the cross. And on that cross, your sin, my sin, the sins of the world, all people for all time were nailed to Jesus, to which he paid the debt that we could never pay God on our own. And so the question I'd like to pose to you right now as we kick this thing off is, do you find yourself being more like the boys in the cave in Thailand who realize the great needs you have and are very grateful for the rescue that's coming your way? Or are you more like the boys on the ice in Canada who didn't see their need and dismissed that they were in danger and were not grateful? And how do you know if you truly are uh, grateful for your rescue? Well, the evidence will be in your actions and attitudes toward the one who rescues you. And so, in essence, our actions toward Jesus, the one who rescued us, will tell us just how much we love him. Our 
actions toward Jesus will evidence our love for Jesus. And that's what we're about to see today as we open up our Bibles again to the book of Luke chapter 7. So I invite you to open up your Bibles, your Bible apps, go to Luke 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, the verses we're going to read are on the screen, but we'd love to give you a Bible as a gift if you don't have one. So stop by a couple different tables you'll find in the foyer and you can get a Bible. And what we're about to see is that Jesus is going to encounter two different people in one um, setting. And one is very uh, aware of their need for forgiveness. One's very aware of their sinfulness, and they respond to it. And there's another person who's not aware of their need for forgiveness, not aware of their sinfulness, and so they don't really have the get it factor where one does. And we're obviously going to see who's who here in a minute. So open up your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 7. And we're going to begin with 36, verse 36, and go through 50. Let's uh, read through this together. One of the Pharisees asked him, that would be referring to Jesus, to eat with him. And he, Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him over saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. He said, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. Just pause there. A denarii was a coin that was worth a day's wage. So the story is going to show someone who has, I mean, how would you like to owe someone 500 days wages, right? Okay, so, so, so one debtor owed him 500 denarii. And he said the other owed him 50. He said, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet." You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, and please repeat this with me out loud, your faith has saved you go in peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for how it pierces through uh, the cloud of our own thoughts and pierces through even the, the walls that we have built up in our heart. And Jesus, we ask that your word would absolutely have a transforming effect on our life right now this morning. And God, we are much like the people we're reading about in the story. So through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you expose our hearts, expose our needs, and help us to be more like Christ today because of what we are about to look at together. We pray in Jesus' name. We all say together. Amen. Amen. I just want to provide a little background 
to frame in this moment uh, that we just read. Uh, Jesus is roaming around the region of Galilee on his search and rescue mission, looking for people who need the Lord. They need salvation, they need forgiveness, they need truth. And he encounters a Pharisee by the name of Simon who invites him into his home. Now, some of you uh, might need to know what a Pharisee is. So a Pharisee is an elite class of Jewish leaders. They're pious, they're devout, they're experts in the Jewish law and traditions and in the Old Testament scriptures. But they would tend to prioritize tradition and law over the scriptures. So because of that, they would start to have a bent toward legalism and self-righteousness. And they were definitely not friends of Jesus, and they were not fans of Jesus. Because in the eyes of a Pharisee, Jesus was coloring outside the lines. And they didn't like what he was saying, they like what he was doing, and they were jealous of the crowds, and so they were very, very suspicious of Jesus. Well, this Pharisee, Simon, invites Jesus over his home for a meal. And it might find you a little, uh, you know, you might find it odd that all of a sudden this woman kind of appears out of nowhere and is wiping Jesus' feet. Like, that, where'd she come from? How'd she get in the house? All those kinds of things. But you just have to understand, you know, ancient Near East culture and customs. And so this was probably because the fact that she did have such easy access to the home, this was probably a holiday or some sort of special occasion where it was common that when someone hosted a meal and invited a special guest, it could have been held out in the courtyard of the common community or held in their home in such an environment that people in the community could just come and go. And so the guests would be around the table, um, you know, the, the main people there talking and visiting and hanging out. And then pretty much anybody could just come and kind of sit against the wall or sit against, you know, stand or sit against the wall and listen in and, and hear what was going on. And so this is really the, the setting that is happening here. And then on top of that, it says they reclined at table. Uh, some of you who are parents are instantly envisioning your kids leaning back on two of the rear legs, right? Then they shouldn't be doing that. Now, th this is not a high table with chairs, which is common in the West. A lot of you know this right now. The table is very low to the ground. It's very close to the ground. And it would be surrounded by pillows and mats, and then the people eating at the table would be basically leaning, you know, leaning on their arms or elbows, their face close to the food. You know, that's math. Face, food, that's good, right? Face is close to the food. Feet, not so good. Feet behind you, right? Especially, you know, those who, they walk around in sandals everywhere and their feet were dirty. And so they'd be reclining on those pillows with their feet away from the table and their heads closer to the table. Hopefully that helps you in your mind's eye as you understand what unfolds in this moment, this very tense and stunning and powerful moment. And what I really want to do is I just want to look at really the key people that we see in this narrative and draw some observations and then learn from those observations. And I'm going to ask you a few reflection questions at the end that I trust God's going to give you some sort of application or next step. But in the meantime, let's just journey together through this text, making some observations. And the first person we want to look at is the woman. Let's look at the woman's actions and make some observations about what they tell us about her. First is this, she's unnamed. We don't know who this woman is. Some say, well, this is Mary Magdalene because there's a woman named Mary Magdalene that was a follower of Christ, but nowhere is she mentioned. There's actually no evidence that this is Mary Magdalene. So uh, that, that's a leap to go there. Some people have mistaken this woman as, a, as another woman called Mary of Bethany who also anoints Jesus. This moment is happening in the begin, near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But there's a woman near the end of Jesus' ministry called Mary of Bethany that right before the Passion Week anoints Jesus also, but she anoints his head, not his feet. 
And she anoints him also uh, with some uh, uh, ointment out of alabaster. But uh, she's in the house of a guy named Simon the leper. And this is, Simon was a very common name. And this is Simon the Pharisee. So that, that's not who this is. So we don't really know who this woman is. She's an unnamed woman. But here's what we do know. She's got a bad reputation. <laughs> she's got a bad reputation. A lot of people look at her, by the way, and they assume that this woman is a prostitute. A lot of times you'll hear that. Oh, remember the prostitute that anointed Jesus? Well, it doesn't say that she was a prostitute. It says she was a sinner. It says she was a lady of the city. It didn't say she was a lady of the night, right? Okay. And so really, there are a lot of other reasons why this woman could have been labeled as a sinner. Obviously, she had some sort of lifestyle that her sinfulness was public that it was kind of common knowledge or observable. She could have been a gambler. She could have owed a lot of people a lot of debt. She could have been an adulteress. We don't know. So it's pretty much speculation that she's a prostitute. She could have been, but we don't know for sure. But she does have a very negative reputation based on immorality, based on impurity, and she's not, she has no fans or friends uh, in the story. Now, here's some other aspects we see of her. She's absolutely desperate. And she's absolutely determined to get to Jesus. And she's extremely courageous. I want you to think about this. She knows her reputation. She knows her sin. And she knows that everybody else knows her sins. And now she's going to go into the home of a Pharisee, a very religious man known for his pious nature, correct? And so she knows when she walks in there, she knows the looks she's going to get. She knows the murmuring that's probably going to start creeping up around, around the room. She knows um, that they're not going to want her there, and she doesn't care. Don't you love that? I love that. Like this woman, there's a desperate need in her gut. I've got to get to Jesus, and I don't care what all those other people are going to think because I need what he has. And so she's absolutely courageous and desperate and determined to get to Jesus, also, what we see about her is she's very aware of her sin. She's very aware of her need. And now she's coming humbly. And she's coming in a spirit of repentance to Jesus. And what we see here is every move of hers is captured. Like, like everything she does is captured and put on these pages where here we are over 2,000 years later reading about this moment. And so we see her kissing and anointing the feet of Jesus, which were expressions of deep reverence and deep humility on her part. I mean, as she starts to wet the tears or wet the feet of Jesus with her tears, how hard do you have to cry to make someone's feet wet, right? This isn't like, oh, I just watched one of those commercials and it kind of sucker punched me and I got a little leak in my eye, you know? This isn't, I went to a movie, and that was a movie, moving scene, and I'm kind of watery, blurry-eyed. No, this is a woman who's weeping. She is, she is sobbing, and her tears are flowing from her, and they're saturating the feet of Jesus. And as we saw in the story, the feet that weren't clean, so his, his dusty, dirty feet are being immersed by the water coming out of this woman's eyes. There is deep sorrow, deep repentance, deep humility flowing out of her, literally. And she's expressing gratitude. And she brings this extravagance in her offering to Jesus. She probably brought 
the most valuable possession she had. If you do a little research on the contents of alabaster vials, um, this is a culture that anointing people with oil uh, was very common. But the common oil was not put in alabaster. It might have been a little flask or some little clay container. Um, and it was just common, uh, you know, olive oil-based type of anoint, anointing oil. But the fine stuff, the, the, the ointment and the perfumes that were expensive were put in these hand-carved alabaster flasks. So we're not talking about your tin can axe spray that you get at Target, right? We're talking about the big expensive glass bottle that you got somewhere in your cabinet that if you're a parent, you're like, you tell your kids you can't touch this, right? You put it in a vault somewhere and save it for special occasions because you don't want them to use it up on themselves, especially if they're in middle school, right? Because we know middle schoolers just take a bath via, that's it, I'm good, I smell good, right? That's not this stuff. This is expensive, extremely valuable, and she brings it with her with the intention of anointing Jesus Christ. Now, she, at this moment, is displaying incredible faith. She comes humbly, she comes gratefully, and now she's demonstrating this incredible faith in Jesus. She believes that he is someone special. And if she's been listening, and she's been listening not to maybe just the teachings of Jesus, but what other people are saying about Jesus, she's going, this is not an ordinary man. This is not even a prophet. He's so much more. And so she comes with her heavy burden and does a humiliating act in front of people that would do nothing but judge her and shame her. But it's the, it's the evidence of true saving faith in who Jesus is. And we see Jesus say those powerful words to her, go, your, your faith has saved you. Now notice this, Jesus didn't say your tears have saved you, right? He didn't say the tears the woman saved her. Like, man, she's just so sorry for what she did. She felt really bad about it. So that, that kind of like weepy apology, oh, that's good. That's not what he said. He didn't say, oh, because she anointed me with this fine perfume, because she used something, that's why she saved that. He didn't say that. He didn't say because of the humility she had and because she was so willing to uh, abase herself and, and, and to wipe his feet. That's not why he said she was saved. He said that she was saved because of her what? You sound like you don't know the answer. Like, you, you, don't, you don't sound very confident. She was saved because of her what? Faith. Faith. She trusted Christ. And that's what saved her. And then what we see in this woman is as Jesus kind of summarizes it, is she's showing love. She's showing love on a whole other level for Jesus. It's no wonder that Jesus said that she loved much. Because what Jesus does is he, he lumps all of this together and says, you see all these actions that she's doing? These actions are rooted in a love because she gets it. She gets her sinfulness. She gets how far, she's, far, far from God she is. And, and she's coming to me in this moment. And she gets it. And she loves much. And so the response of this woman demonstrates this true saving faith. And I want you to think about the freeing power that that woman experienced when Jesus looked at her and said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If this woman is living an outwardly immoral lifestyle of any nature, when is the last time she has ever had peace? When's the last time she was ever able to just put her head on her pillow and just soundly drift off to sleep in peace? When was the last time she was able to walk through a crowd? And even though people might have opinions of who she was in her past life, she can hold her head high because she has peace. 
I hope all of you have that peace. See, this woman left the situation having peace with God and having peace with herself. And Jesus lumped it all together and says, it's because she loved much. And she loved much because she got it and she acted on that. So when you connect the actions of this woman to the understanding that our actions toward Jesus evidence our love for Jesus, then what we see is that this woman loved Jesus greatly. Now we're going to look at Simon. And we want to look at Simon's actions and probably a little bit more specifically his inactions, right? Let's look at Simon's actions or inactions to make some observations about what they tell us about him, Simon the Pharisee. First, we see this. He was skeptical. He was skeptical of Jesus. And he had in his heart unbelief. There was unbelief in his heart. Now, we need to pause here and and really clarify this. Because I think unbelief and doubt are different. Unbelief and doubt are different. Like Pastor Joe did a great job last week, if you were here. He talked about doubt. And how when we have doubt, and he looked at the doubt of John the Baptist when he was in prison, and how if we have doubt, we go to Jesus. Here's the reality. If you're a follower of Christ, um, and if you're not a follower of Christ, the reality is we all have doubt, but doubt and unbelief are different. I really like the way pastor, author, and theologian Warren Wearsby articulated this. He says, doubt is a matter of the mind. We cannot understand what God is doing or why he's doing it. But unbelief is a matter of the will. We refuse to believe God's word and obey what he tells us to do. See, unbelief is a willful decision. I will not believe. Nothing you tell me, nothing you show me, no argument, no debate, nothing we're going to do is going to change my mind. I'm, there's unbelief in my heart. Doubt, on the other hand, is expected. There are going to be moments in our human weakness we struggle to trust God fully. God, why are you allowing this uh, circumstance in my life? God, where are you? I know you love me. I know you care. I don't know why. And you, you kind of have these shouting matches with God, like, I don't get what you're doing. That might be a moment of doubt, but that doesn't mean it's a moment of unbelief. And so you really think I you think need to make that distinction. Doubt is not unbelief, but I do want to make this caution. If you feed your doubt, it will become unbelief. See, what you feed grows. What you starve dies. And so if you're doubting God and then you start to feed that doubt with lies and arguments and whatever's going to grow that thing, then it can morph into unbelief. And now we got a deeper issue. And so we see when we look at Simon here, there was unbelief. It wasn't merely doubt. There was unbelief in his heart. And it's evident in how he acted. And when we look at his life, he was apathetic toward Jesus. He was indifferent toward Jesus. He was stingy, and he was unhospitable. To to wash the feet of someone that entered into your home was customary. And so when someone would walk into your home, walking the streets of uh, the village with those sandals, it was very customary that you would walk into a home, and uh, either the host or one of the servants would wash the dirt off your feet and towel dry, and then you could go because your feet's going to be close to the food on some level. And it's just customary. Also, uh, ancient Near East culture, the, the kiss. Jesus said, you didn't kiss me. Some of you are like, that's kind of a little peculiar, you know. But if you like were raised in an Italian family, right, or a European family, you know what's going on here, right? This is the kissing on the cheek and the love. Like, that's very common in the Eastern culture. And so uh, the, the equivalent for us is like, if you had a guest come over and you didn't shake their hand or hug them or take their jacket when they came in, you're like, ah, oh, it's you. Okay, well, you know, just... <laughs> That's basically what Simon did with Jesus. 
He just came over to his house and he, he didn't give the most basic customary actions. He just absolutely neglected that. And so uh, we see that it conveys a lack of value and a lack of interest, a lack of hospitality from Simon to Jesus. We also see here in Simon that he's unaware of his own sinfulness. Like he doesn't get it. So, so to help us understand that, just a pop quiz. You're going to have to think really hard about this one. Ask your neighbor if you need help. Pop quiz. How many sins do you have to commit to be considered a sinner? One. Some of you are like, ah, oh, it's a trick question. No, one. Okay. So how many sinners in this room do we have, right? You didn't raise your hand, you lied, you're a sinner. Raise your hand. The woman in the room, she was a sinner but so was Simon. And other than Jesus, so was everyone else in that room and in that village and in that region and everyone else on the globe. This room is still full of people who are sinners, saved by grace though, amen? And so, but Simon didn't get it. He definitely, no, he did. He maximized her sin and minimized his. We've never done that, right? We've never maximized the sins of someone else and minimized ours. We've never done that, Correct. See, see, we judge people on their actions and we judge ourselves on our intentions, correct? Well, this is what I meant. Well, it didn't come out that way. And then other people, and you're like, oh, you're just a sinner, you know. You need Jesus. And you're like, yeah, so do you, okay? <laughs> Simon didn't get it. He didn't see his own sinfulness. You know, sometimes I wonder if you and I still acutely have this awareness of how sinful we are. The whole argument, like, are humans naturally good or naturally bad? We're naturally bad. Get over it. Stop arguing it. It's done. You never have to teach a kid to disobey. You never have to turn, tell someone to say, we're just naturally bent to bad. And that's sin, and it's gross, and it's offensive to God. And so we need to remember that every lie, every deception, every act of selfishness, every um, act of rebellion, every careless word, every morsel of gossip, every act of negative influence on others, every immoral action, every inclination to resist the good that God wants us to do is sin. And we're barraged every day with those inclinations, aren't we? But Simon didn't seem to see his. He was blinded by his self-righteousness. He was blinded by his pride so that he didn't see his own need for forgiveness. And what that led to do in Simon's heart is that Simon saw no value in this woman. He had no compassion on her life or need. And he did not want to associate with her in any way. He saw himself as morally superior. He saw himself as spiritually superior. He saw himself as more holy. And what he did is he sat in judgment of that woman in the presence of Jesus. And I would even venture to say, based on what we see, he might have even sat there in judgment of Jesus. I think about this. He might have actually been there going like, I think I actually am more holy than this guy here named Jesus. Because if this guy was truly a prophet, he would know. He would know, but he doesn't, but I do. And so you have this stench of self-righteousness and pride permeating the room. I think that was one of the odors that Jesus picked up. Jesus didn't just pick up the scent of the ointment that was now bathing his feet from the woman. He was probably picking up the stench of self-righteousness. Simon didn't see just what a mess he was. We also think that Simon probably had mixed motives for inviting Jesus into his house. 
I don't think Simon invited Jesus over because he wanted to be his friend. Like, I kind of hit it off with this Jesus guy. Like, I think we got good vibes. Hey, want to come over for lunch? I think we could be friends. I don't think this is what's going on. His absolute neglect of the common courtesy of normal hospitality would indicate that. And so probably is, he's trying to invite Jesus in so he can try to trap Jesus in his words, put some sort of negative light on him, expose him somehow to be a false prophet, false teacher, and then be able to turn the crowd against him. And then this woman, who's got a bad reputation, shows up and starts touching Jesus. And you know what Simon's thinking, right? Simon's going, got him. This is it. I'm going to exploit this moment. And then Jesus flips the script. Don't you love that? Simon's going, oh, I got this guy. And Jesus is like, actually, I got you now. And then he tells this parable of this debtor who forgives those who owe him. And so in the parable, the money lender represents God. The, debtors rep- the debt represents sin. And the two debtors represent people who have two different levels of awareness of what they've been forgiven of. And of course, one represents the Pharisee in this moment, and one represents the woman. And and don't be confused. The the, the parable Jesus tells here is not about how much sin, because she says, well, the woman has been forgiven of much. It's not about who has more sin. It's about who has more awareness of their sin. That's the point of the parable that Jesus is teaching here. And the woman was more aware of how much she'd been forgiven, and that's why she loved Jesus much. And Simon was not aware, and therefore he loved Jesus little. I want to go back to something I shared a minute ago. You know, if, if the woman experienced incredible peace after this encounter with Jesus, I wonder to myself if Simon ever experienced peace. Did the Simon guy ever truly experience peace? Like he's, he's resting in his own good works. He's resting and trusting in his own religious veneer. Did he ever go to bed with his head on a pillow having absolute ultimate peace? We don't know. We're not told. But if I had to speculate, I'm going to say big fat no. <laughs> Simon didn't get it. So when you take the actions of Simon... And you take this concept that our actions toward Jesus will evidence our love for Jesus. One thing becomes very clear. Simon had little love for Jesus. But I want to take a couple minutes and really look at the observations of another person that's very key and very dominant in this narrative, and that's Jesus. What can we learn about Jesus when we look at some of the observations in this encounter? Well, the first thing we see here is that he's willing to give everybody a chance. He loves everyone. He knew Simon's heart, right? He knew Simon's motive. He knew why Simon was inviting him over, this self-righteous Pharisee. He knew what was up. And it's amazing because we look at Jesus and we go, he'll eat with tax collectors and sinners and the outcasts. And yes, but guess what? He also ate with this self-righteous guy and accepted the invitation to his home. He's going to give everybody a shot. He's going to throw out that gospel seed and just see what, where it lands and where it's going to grow. And so we see that in the heart of our Savior. Also, he allowed this woman to touch him. Like, like, think about that. Like, this is a spectacle. They're eating, and all of a sudden, this woman's weeping and sobbing, and she's pouring ointment, and it's like, all the senses are activated. People are here weeping. They see this woman, and they're, uh, you know, offended by her presence. Uh, they smell the ointment. There, there's a multi-sensory moment here. Everybody's got to be clued in on what's going on in this room, and Jesus could be like, hey, man, can you kind of cut that out? It's kind of bu- bugging me a little bit. 
kind of make him a spectacle here. Can we, like, can we talk about this later or something? I mean, it wasn't like she just walked up and did this for like 10 seconds. He said, you didn't, even, you didn't even wash my feet, but since I've been here, she has yet ceased. So this is a moment, and Jesus is allowing it. He's allowing her just to pour out her repentance and her grief and her humility and all those things, and he lets her touch him. You know what everyone else in the room was thinking, right? That if this woman touches Jesus, she's going to make him what? Unclean, dirty, defiled. But when she touched him, what happened was he made her what? Clean. He cleansed her. I hope every single one of you in this room, I hope every single one of you watching online, I hope all of you have felt the cleansing power of Jesus Christ when you came to him. You're not going to make Jesus dirty. Some of you here are struggling. You're like, I, I want God. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want him so bad, but, but I still got this highlight reel of all the crud I've done in my life and the, the really, really, really bad stuff, and he would never want me. I'm like, you're not going to make Jesus dirty. He's going to make you clean. And for all of us who come to Christ, we did not make him dirty. He made us clean. Man, we love our Jesus, don't we? He also reads minds. I love that. I love that. Simon said to himself, dot, dot, dot. This prophet, if he would have known, dot, dot, dot. <clears throat> hey, Simon. Yeah, yes, sir. I got something to say to you. Oh, really? Bring it on. Oh, what is this? Money lender. <laughs> he knows who's genuine and who's not. He knows who's grateful and who's not. He knows who trusts him and who doesn't. Guys, we, we can't fake Jesus out. You can go to church every Sunday. You can be in a life group. You can teach a life group. You can have the Bible memorized. He knows. He knows if you love him. He knows if you truly believe. He knows if you trust. He knows us. And because of that, he exposes the true condition of our hearts. You know what I love about this parable? Jesus is using his words to expose what's inside of Simon's heart. Don't you love that about God's word? We call it the living truth here at CVC. It's alive and it's true. And he uses his word to reveal what's inside Simon's heart. Like every time we read scripture, it exposes what's in our heart, Right? Like some of you are sitting here and we're going through this passage and some of you are like, oh man, yeah, I, I totally feel like the woman. There's been so many times when like, I'm, I'm, that's me. And some of you might be thinking like, oh crud, I think I'm a little bit like Simon. I think I need to go to the bathroom. What time is service over? How can I get out of here? My spouse is looking at me. My kids are staring at me. I know it. <laughs> Every time we're in God's word, it just exposes our hearts. I think that's subconsciously why some of us aren't in the Bible as much as we want to be and know we should be. So every time we get into God's word, guess what happens? He exposes our heart. And he'll affirm the good. And he'll heal and love on the hurting parts. And then the parts that are kind of Simon-esque here, the self-righteous stench, he's going to be like, mm, hey, that's you. Jesus exposes the hearts. And so he looks at the actions and the inactions of Simon, reveals his heart, and says, I don't think you get it. The last thing that I want to talk about Jesus here is this. He forgives sins. 
And just in case you didn't hear that clearly, I want to repeat it. He forgives sins. He forgives sins. You know, he could have said to the woman, hey, look, this is really cool. I'm going to put a good word in for my father, and I think he's going to forgive you. He could have said, you know, hey, this is going well. Uh, this, is a good, this is a good step toward good works. So why don't you go do these other good works? Why don't you go do these sacraments? Why don't you go do these other good works? And then check in with me about a week or two. I, I think we can work with you. I think we'll be able to forgive you. He looked at this woman and said, your sins are forgiven. And all the people at the table, like that created a moment, right? All the people at the table like, whoa, 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 buddy. Who's this guy think he is? God? Yes. Yes, he does. Only God forgives sins, right? Only God can forgive sins. And so these people are faced with the same classical argument that we're faced with. And I love coming back to that. I'll never get tired of this classic argument. You look at Jesus, you look at his teaching, you look at his life, you have three options. You've got to take your pick. There is no other pick. You think he was an absolute madman. He was a, he locked up because he was a loony. And all these people, if he was crazy and you follow him, what's that make you? Just saying. So you think he was crazy, thought he was God, but he wasn't, or he is the most master deceiver the world has ever seen and has tricked millions all over the world to follow him. Or he's exactly who he says he is, and he's God in the flesh, and he does forgive sins. And the only way you're going to be made right with God and the only way your relationship with God is going to be restored is if you come to Jesus and no one else and nothing else. Jesus is either a total whack job, he's a liar, deceiver, or he is the savior, rescuer, redeemer of mankind. You don't have any other options. Jesus forgives sins. Now notice, Jesus did not overlook the, or ignore the woman's sins. Remember what he said about the woman? He said, your sins are many. Her sins are many. Like she's got them, but she gets it. She loves much. She comes. And so we look at Jesus and we realize that he's a forgiver of sin. I love the language. I love the, the parable that Jesus used. He used a parable that was about debt. It's very common in the Bible that you'll see sin portrayed as a metaphor of debt. I, I just want you in a very humanistic way to think about, and some of you are here and I'm really, I'm really proud of you and admire you for this, but imagine if every single debt in your life was absolutely canceled. I don't know a debt you're sitting here with right now, but right now, what if your phone chirped? And your mortgage company just texted you and said, hey, FYI, we just zeroed out your mortgage. You don't owe us anything. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah! Then <laughs> all of a sudden your phone chirps again and maybe you have a car payment or two or three. I hope not, but you know, whatever. And all of a sudden like, your bank says, hey, by the way, I just want you to know um, your car loan's been paid off. You, you don't owe us anything anymore. We're sending you the, you know, the, the, the title in the mail. And then all of a sudden your college, you know, text your phone, bing! By the way, all your student loans are paid off. You don't owe us anything. And then maybe you have some, you know, some consumer debt and your credit card company, you know, texts you and says, bing, you owe us nothing. And you look at your life and you have zero debt. How would you act if that was the case? We'd be seeing a lot of really happy people out there. You guys would be going to bed with your face muscles sore because you'd be smiling so big, right? We owe Jesus the debt of sin. Remember in the, in the, in the parable, Jesus said they owed him, they could not pay. We can't pay our sin. Jesus has cleared our sin, and we can't even crack a smile about it sometimes. Our actions are going to reveal, if we get it, of, what, of who he is and what he's done and how much we love him because of it. 
So if you get that, if you have that get it factor, it will generate such a depth of gratitude and love for Jesus that it will be evidenced in your life through your actions toward Christ, like desiring to spend time with Jesus in his word and in prayer, um, by desiring to uh, spend time with others who love Jesus and get it like you get it. Uh, you'll find a joyful... Um, uh, you'll find joy in serving Jesus through your gifts and talents. You'll uh, joyfully be generous to give of your resources for the kingdom. Uh, you'll love to bless others in the name of Jesus. You'll tell other people about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And you'll long for others who don't know Christ to come to know him. And nothing will rival the excitement you have when someone you know comes to Christ, especially if you get a witness or baptism. These are the things, the actions that will come from us if we get it. So yes, our actions toward Jesus greatly evidence our love for Jesus. And by the way, just an aside point that I think we need to make here. When you become a follower of Jesus, he makes you more like him. And in this case, he's going to make you more like him and less like Simon. And so using this moment as a model, as we continue to interact with fellow sinners in this world, we go from being like Simon, who is skeptical and self-righteous and judgmental and uncaring, to be more like Jesus, who's compassionate and engaging those who are trapped in sin. And we are communicators of hope and forgiveness and messengers of God's peace. Like we're going to treat other sinners more like Jesus treated the woman than Simon treated the woman. And so to summarize all that, our actions toward Jesus are going to give evidence for our love for Jesus. So let's just spend some time evaluating everything based on what we just heard. Do you find yourself being more like the woman in the story or more like Simon? If you're more like the woman, then you're desperate, you're determined, you're courageous, you're, you see your need, you're humble, you're repentant, you're grateful, you're extravagant, and you're offering to Christ. You demonstrate faith and you show love for Jesus and you don't care what other people think about it. And if you find yourself more like Simon, you're skeptical, you're unbelieving, you're apathetic toward Jesus, indifferent, stingy, you're unaware of your own sinfulness, you maximize the sinfulness of others and minimize your own, self-righteous, you have mixed motives for inviting Jesus in, Oh, I'm going to invite Jesus in if he, dot, 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 will do this for me. So we have those mixed motives, and then we show little love for Jesus, if any. And so as we think about that, I just want to insert three reflection questions to wrap up. And these questions are for you to process and think, and I would encourage you to write them down. Take your notes out or pull up a note you know, icon on your device. Uh, here's the first reflection question that I want you to think about right now. What words describe your thoughts and feelings that Jesus came to rescue you? Like if you took a blank piece of paper in your journal and just started writing down all the words that come to mind about, man, this is how I feel because Jesus rescued me, what words would be there? I encourage you to do that exercise. It would be a great exercise. In fact, that's a great conversation starter in the car on the way out of this parking lot as you go to lunch or whatever's next. Hey, what words come to your mind when you think about Jesus rescuing you? How do you feel about that? be a great conversation. The second reflection question is this. What actions in your life evidence that you love Jesus and understand how much he's forgiven you? What actions are going to be visible, observable to others, right? What actions in your life evidence that you love Jesus and understand how much he's forgiven you? What actions come to mind? And if you're really, really, really serious about this, I dare you. I dare you to give your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, your friends a blank piece of paper 
and say, would you just take a few minutes and write down all the actions you see in my life that tell you that I love Jesus? And see what they write. And some of you are going like, I don't know if I can do that. And the third reflection question is this. What action step do you sense God wants from you today based on how you've answered those two questions? (laughs) I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit will tell you what you need to do. What course correction do you need to make today because of this beautiful, deep, impacting text where we get to see what Jesus did, the observations we've made? My hope is that my actions and your actions will clearly communicate to everyone around us and to the world that we get it. We know how much we've been forgiven and we have a deep love for Jesus and that we love him much and it's very obvious. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thanks for this text. Thanks for these words. Thank you for the reminder you've given us here. We thank you that you have come to us extended relationship. We thank you for the cross that made forgiveness of sins possible. We thank you for you being a God who wants to have relationship, wants to have repair with us, and that you made it possible. Lord, we confess that we've been like the woman, sinful, dirty, aware of that sin, so needy for you to forgive us. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who've come to you and have received your forgiveness. I pray for anyone else here watching online or in this room that needs you, that like that woman today, they'll come to you in saving faith and they will admit that they're a sinner, that they will believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sin to have forgiveness and that they will commit their lives to follow you. Lord, we also confess that we naturally drift toward being like Simon, Lord, we're sorry for the times that we have been indifferent to you, have neglected our relationship with you. God, we're sorry for when we have treated other sinners the way Simon treated this woman. Somehow we saw ourselves as better, more holy, unwilling to be tainted by a fellow sinner, not associating with someone else who's broken and fallen like we are. God, forgive us of that. Lord, I pray that this community right here will be known for how much we love Jesus, how much we love those who need Jesus. So God, do a work on our life, we ask in Jesus' name. We all sit together.